Michael Levitin, and this is episode 14 of The Tell. People have always told me that I should trust my gut and follow my instincts, um, and I think this is pretty bad advice for me, usually. <laughs> my instincts are pretty bad, um, you know, and I, I think they should really give me the opposite advice, that uh, I should do anything but what I would normally do, and uh, I should try to go outside of my comfort zone, do things that I would never want to, um, and see if I can get better results. I understand everybody wants to tell you that you should be yourself um, and, you know, you should trust your instincts, trust yourself, you're fine as you are. Um, I think that advice works for some people, not necessarily for me. Um, so I've tried a lot of social experiments over time. Um, at one point, a lot of conversations that you have all the time were going wrong a lot. You know, someone would ask what I do and it, I would just annoy everyone with any answer I tried. And so I... I made flowcharts of different things I could say and different ways it, they could respond and then what I'd say after that. Like, I planned conversations and then tried them all to see if any of them were less annoying than what I normally did. Um, you know, at one point, I was coming off as off-putting so, so much that I, I decided to stick to the safest, most boring conversation topics. I thought I would talk about people's favorite colors and uh, the weather. Um, so... These sound like pretty ridiculous experiments, uh, and, you know, they were. Like, most of my experiments went really badly. They, they sounded like bad ideas, and they were bad ideas. But I had to go through a lot of, you know, bad ideas to solve anything. So the stories in this episode uh, are from Kenise Mobley and Joyce Maynard, and uh, you can see what happens when someone tries to solve their troubles with an unusual approach. This is episode 14 of The Tell. So when I was in school, I majored in psychology, I worked in a lab, and I did a lot of experiments on children. <laughs> They're all fine. They're all still alive, as far as I know. Uh, like, we did a recreation of the Clark doll study, the one where we would give children dolls of different skin tones and ask them which one they liked the most. Uh, it's kind of depressing. This is, like, not so long ago. And to hear just, I don't want the dark one, she's ugly, uh, over and over and over again is, like, a specific type of depression. It's, <laughs> it was a rough semester. But while I was hanging out there, uh, a group of graduate students came up to me and they said something to the effect of, we have noticed that you are black. That's, so they didn't say those exact words, but that's like the gist, okay? That's like a condensed version. Uh, and they asked me to help them with their experiment. So their experiment was basically this. They knew that holding hands during moments of stress tends to calm people down, but they wanted to test the effects of the race of the hand to see like, okay, would a black hand be as calming as a white hand? So my job would be to uh, sit behind a curtain, right? And people would recount like their most embarrassing moments. And at the moment the researcher indicated, I would reach my hand <laughs> through, through the curtain and I would hold their hand. <laughs> Just over and over and over. And I can tell you after a summer of doing this, a lot of people have shat their pants. Like, a lot of people do the... Like, I have never, but apparently it is a common thing, and everyone is very embarrassed by this. So, 
At the end of the summer, they called me back in. They needed me to take a picture holding a white hand. They needed a black hand and a white hand. And apparently I was still the only black person they knew to call for this. So I go, I do the picture, and they tell me the results of the study. They tell me that, yes, the race of the hand does affect the results. That if it's a black hand, it's less comforting than just a disembodied hand generally, I guess. Yeah, it's, un- it's unfortunate, I guess. Uh, I didn't become a psychologist. I, that is not how my life turned out. I ended up working at a marketing job I hated. Um, hate is a weird word. Like, what's the one where you cry in the bathroom every day? What is that? I don't know. Is that hate? Exactly. And I started developing panic attacks. Like, they started off super small, just like little fleeting things, and they got worse over time. Any confined space would do it. So, like, I took a nap on a flight from Charlotte to New Orleans, and I wake up, and I can feel it coming on. And if you have panic attacks, you know a lot of the symptoms. It's like my heart's starting to race, and my breathing is speeding up, and my mind is racing, and I'm like, I got to get out of here, I got to get out of here, I got to get out of here. And I recognize, okay, this is a panic attack. So I do what makes the most sense to me. I leap over the woman next to me, and I go to a flight attendant, because they're sky professionals, and they would clearly know what to do in this moment. And so I go up to the flight attendant and I'm like, I'm about to have a a panic attack. What do we do about this? (laughs) And I will say, if you ever want to know who the air marshal is (laughs) on a flight, have a panic attack. Very quickly, like a six-foot-tall man was just shouting at me, do we need to land this plane? <laughs> and surprisingly, that doesn't calm you down. Um, that didn't help the situation. So it, like, it hits full tilt. I'm crying at this woman. And another flight attendant like, pipes up from the back, and she's like, girl, do you drink? And normally at 11 a.m. on the way to a business convention, like, the answer is no. But she, like, took a part of the, like, the, the beverage cart out, put it next to the door. She set me down on that and fed me drinks until I stopped scaring the other passengers. <laughs> it worked. I couldn't do that. Unfortunately, I couldn't do that all the time. You can't just be drunk constantly to prevent the fear. But, it, it, you know, you get it. Um, so like I went to a, a therapist, like we talked about coping mechanisms. It was like, hey, like envision a place where you feel really safe. Envision like all of the parts of that and go through that in your mind to like calm you down. Another one was like, check in, like how are your feet doing? You know? Like are your feet okay in this moment? And I was like, cool, all right, I got this. I can handle this. Anytime a panic attack comes at me, I'll hit it with these strategies, right? So I'm on a train, I live in Boston, I'm on a train, it gets stuck between two stations, and I can feel it starting, because that's the thing, like, I'm stuck underground, and I don't know what's going to happen, so it starts, and my heart starts racing, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to go through these, oh, I got this so good, I'm going to go through these coping mechanisms, right, so I'm like, okay, my, my bedroom, okay, my, my bedspread, oh my God, I love my sheets, everything's on fire, just images of everything <laughs> on fire, and that 
that made it worse. That did definitely make it worse. <laughs> so then my, my body temperature like goes from like, oh, like a nice bath to like a boiling cup of water instantly. And so I do, again, the thing that makes the most sense. I start disrobing in the middle of this train. And thankfully it's winter, so like I'm wearing like 18 layers, but it did get a little awkward. Like I never, I didn't get naked. I did not get naked on this uh, MBTA train. Uh, but so I, I'm sitting there like, okay, I've, I've, I've got to get to the door. I've got to make my way out. And it's like, I'm trying to inch to the door. It's a very crowded train. It's the middle of the morning. And this guy's like, hey, we're stuck between stations, lady. You're not going to be able to get out right now. And I was like, wow, thank you for articulating my deepest fear. <laughs> so I just, it starts, I'm like crying, just crying, holding a ball of my clothes, just trying to inch through a crowd to get to the door. I will say, uh, it's impressive how many different directions people can look to not see you. <laughs> like, it's a crowded train, everyone's eyes. <laughs> somehow managed to be pointing away from me. It, it was impressive, almost. But I get to the door, and I'm like, convinced I'm going to die. My breathing is going crazy. I'm 1,000 degrees. And this lady pops up next to me. She's an older lady. Uh, old is a bit of an understatement. Okay, like... If you were to draw her face, right? It would be more lines than face. And she's wearing like a full fur coat and a fur hat. Like she's straight out of a painting from the 1880s, you know? Impressive, really. And she's like, hi, are, are you okay? And I'm like, ah. And she's like, okay, I think you're having a panic attack. My daughter has panic attacks. And I was not very kind in that moment because I don't give a shit about her daughter. I'm like freaking out. So I was like, that's great, <laughs> cool. But then she's like, would it help if I held your hand? This is a white lady, and I'm like... <laughs> Based on my scientific expertise, I don't know, you know? But like, in that moment, none of that matter. I thought I was gonna die. Like, I take her hand. I take her old claw hand, and I just hold on to it until we get to the station. And I cry just the whole time. Like, I don't know what other people were thinking. Like, clear... I'm black. Like, I get it. They're like, she's crazy or she's on drugs. It's fine. But I'm just like, ah. And so the train stops at the station finally. It takes like 20 minutes to get there. And the doors open up. And I just kind of like slump out onto the platform, still holding all my stuff. And I can't move. And people are just like awkwardly stepping around me, trying to get out. And finally, I'm just like left on the platform. It's cold. It's the middle of winter. I'm just shivering, trying to recover from this deep embarrassment, but also, like, my body's, like, going crazy. And she just, like, appears beside me again. <laughs> and she's like, hey, you okay? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and then she's like, can I, can I give you a hug? And I was like, we've already held hands, so we hug very deeply. And she says, I hope you have a wonderful day. And then I did. <laughs> So, 
I'm going to take you back to the summer of 2011. Um, and at this point, I think I had been divorced and knocking around on Match.com and places like that uh, for over 20 years. <laughs> in fact, I'd been knocking around before there was a Match.com. Um, and uh, I, I have to admit to you that I'm a romantic. So I always looked to find my, my true love, my soulmate. Um, and, uh, but 22 years is a long time to be on Match.com. <laughs> um, and I, I had come to the conclusion that maybe this um, true love, this quest for the true love was, was not working out too well. So I, um, I, I thought I'd loosen my standards a little bit. And I agreed to go out on a date with a man um, to whom I felt absolutely no attraction. But he, he did invite me to go to a really nice restaurant, and I decided I, I needed to be open-minded. Now, I will mention to you that at this very point in my life, um, I had just been, um, I've been a writer for a long time, and a friend of mine had been hired to, be, to teach writing at an opera workshop on the Amalfi Coast. Very unlikely thing. There were all these uh, young uh, go-getter opera singers who were going to converge on this very picturesque little village in the Amalfi Coast. And somehow they wanted to have a writing teacher there for all the opera fans to um, while away some of the hours in between the opera performances. And my friend uh, had to cancel at the last minute. And he called me and he asked if I would like to teach writing on the Amalfi Coast at an opera festival. Um, free trip to Italy and a hotel room looking out over the Mediterranean in this very beautiful, very romantic little Italian village. And I said yes. So that's about where I was preparing for my trip to Italy when I went out on my date with Doug. <laughs> and. Um, uh, the, the date was not scintillating. I, I'm guessing there might be one or two people in this room who've had this kind of a date. Uh, Doug was a big sports fan, and he, and he uh, had a lot to say about the San Francisco Giants, and I had absolutely nothing to say in response, um, uh, except to ask what sport they played. Um, <laughs> Uh, and at the end of the date, Doug seemed to think, he did one actually really great thing that was kind of unusual in my Match.com dates, he paid for dinner. <laughs> and it, it, he seemed to think everything had gone great. And so he said, so, you know, when are we gonna get together again? And I said, I had a little trump card for how I was gonna um, escape. And I said, well, actually, I'm going off to a little village in the Amalfi Coast uh, in 10 days. And Doug said, well, uh, uh, why don't you invite me to come along with you? Now, you don't know me, so, um, you know, if you have only this story to base your assessment of me on, you're going to just think I was crazy. But I had been on Match.com for 22 years. <laughs> and I was thinking my old strategy didn't work, 
my high standards, my, you know, maybe I'm too critical. Plus, I was thinking, I'm going to this super romantic little village on, you know, the Amalfi Coast. I have a free hotel room. Maybe, you know, it'll just be, maybe I can try just having fun for a change um, and not look for torment and angst and, and going right to the center of everything and having big discussions. Maybe I'll just talk a little bit about the San Francisco Giants and, and have a good time. And I have to also say that I, I, had, I had only been to Italy once long before with my youngest son. So I had no, I had this dream of a romantic trip to Italy. And I thought maybe this was my moment to have it. And I pictured going out to restaurants where you'd like twirl the pasta on your fork and you'd drink, you'd have those bottles of wine that come in baskets and there'd be lots of candles and and I'd wear all these beautiful outfits that I don't usually get a chance to wear. Well, I'm wearing a kind of fancy dress tonight for you, but, but mostly, um, you know, a writer just hangs out in her yoga pants. So I, whenever I have an opportunity to put on a fancy dress, I'm really excited. Um, so I said, okay, to Doug. I said, okay, uh, yeah, why don't you come along to Italy? I said that. And um, we did, I think we had like one very short date in between when I said yes to Italy and when I left for Italy. And, and it wasn't a very memorable date, but it, nothing horrible happened. And I, I think I kept it short so nothing horrible would. Um, and uh, I was gonna have to go to Italy one day before Doug. He was gonna join me uh, at the romantic hotel room looking out over the Mediterranean. So I landed in Naples. I was gonna take a car to, to the Amalfi Coast. And I shared the car with a woman who was an opera fan who was coming to this festival. And um, she was, her name was Mendy, and she was 78 years old. And um, in the car, it was about an hour and a half ride from Naples, um, she, uh, she asked me about myself and, and she told me about herself. She had been, she had a, um, a, a kind of tragic romantic life for the first 58 years of her life. And then she met her true love, Jack. And they had 12 really great years. And then Jack got very sick and Jack died. And um, since then, and this was actually the anniversary of Jack's death, and she always took a special trip because they used to travel together, and she was going to go to the Amalfi Coast. And she took out her little program of all the opera events that were coming, and there was a picture of Jack that was, that was pasted on the front. And she said, I just take Jack with me everywhere. And I'm alone now, but, you know... Um, it's really, um, it's better to have had this wonderful relationship, even if I'm alone now. I, I know what, what a great relationship was. And then she asked me about me, and I said, well, actually, I'm meeting a man here. I was already feeling somewhat uh, uh, uncomfortable about this event, but Mendy was really excited. She was also a romantic, and she said, oh, you're going to have a lover here and tell me all about him. And I really couldn't tell her all about him because I didn't know much about him, which was actually, I later found out that was the good period of our relationship. <laughs> um, 
But she, she, she couldn't wait for the update. And she said, be sure. And, you know, I, she said, I know you're going to be very busy with Doug, but try to, you know, send me a code or something about how it's going. So the next afternoon, I settled in and I met my writing students and I got to hear some really wonderful opera in a, in a, in a centuries-old Italian church. I, I wasn't an opera fan before, but, but how can you not love opera in a little Italian, centuries-old Italian church um, uh, with a lot of red wine around, too? Um, and then came the hour that Doug arrived. Now, I think I have his list of priorities as he walked in the room. I couldn't really remember what he looked like. And it was a little bit of a shock when I saw him because I kind of pictured him a little bit better. Um, but his priorities, I believe, were in this order. To um, check on the stock market, check on how the giants had done, and have sex. And... Um, those things were accomplished. Um, and I think I knew at that moment, this was day one, hour 1.5, um, that this had been a terrible mistake. Um, but the good news was that uh, Doug had absolutely no interest in opera. So I went off to hear the opera alone that night. And I met up with Mendy, and she and I had a great conversation. And I, I, I was still sort of keeping it. I was embarrassed because she didn't know me very well. And I thought, I really sound like a slut. Um, uh, and a, a more important, that's OK to be that. But stupid is what I um, so uh, the next morning, I went off and taught my class. Turns out Doug really liked to sleep in late. And when I came back from teaching my class, Doug was gone. I later found out that he was in the bar, which was one of his favorite places to be at the hotel. Oh, shoot, I didn't tell you something really important. I had gotten so excited about going to Italy with a man. I chose to just make him be this kind of blank man <laughs> that I had added on two legs to the trip. We were going to also visit these uh, two gay friends of mine, one Italian, one Canadian, who lived in another little village on the Amalfi Coast, old friends, and I was really excited to see them. And then we were going to go to Venice. And on night two, um, I told Doug about my friends. He had a vague, he hadn't paid too much attention because he was really focusing a lot on the giants who were in a slump at that point, um, as was I. Uh, um, uh, but when I mentioned my friends and, um, uh, and their uh, uh, relationship, he, um, he did one of those really bad imitations of a gay man and I did a very good imitation of a stone. Um, the third day, we had a field trip on the, at the opera festival. We went to see Pompeii. And all my students came along with me and we toured. I don't know if any of you have been to Pompeii, but it's very interesting. It's educational, but also exciting. And um, they took us to, they took us all around, you know, here's where the butcher was and the candlestick maker and the tailor. And here's the house of prostitution. 
at Pompeii. And we, uh, Doug perked up at that point. And uh, he wasn't really one for historic sites of Italy particularly, but he got excited um, at Pompeii. And there were, I don't know if any of you have been here, but been there, but over the doorways of all the different rooms of the House of Prostitution, there are these little um, sort of hieroglyphs of couples uh, having sex in very interesting positions, very surprising positions. And, and Doug uh, really perked up at that point. And he pointed to one of the door arches and, and he said, take notes, Joyce. <laughs> so day three, I always met Mendy for breakfast. And, and we discussed, um, mostly I just asked her to tell me about Jack because talking about Doug was kind of a downer. Um, uh, but um, Mindy said, you know, you've got to be true to yourself. And I knew she was right. And so at Mindy's suggestion, I invited Doug out to dinner in town on me. We weren't going to go to the, the restaurant at the hotel where all the students were because I knew that I needed to have a heart-to-heart -heart with Doug. And we sat down and we ordered the wine. And, and uh, Doug seemed to think that everything was doing really great. I remember he said to me, don't ever cut your hair. It had not occurred to me to cut my hair, but suddenly the idea sounded really good. <laughs> um, but he clearly thought he was going to be around for the hairdo. And I said, and you know, this is what women do. And to the men out here, if you've ever heard a woman say this, don't really believe her. You know, I don't know what's wrong with me, Doug. You know, I just, I just can't seem to handle, you know, a relationship. I'm confused. I'm, I'm not ready. I've only been divorced 22 years. Um, and he was, um, he, he didn't take this swiftly or well. He didn't really grasp the concept for some time. Um, but finally I said, he said, well, what do you mean exactly? And I said, I think Doug, that we need to go our separate ways and no harm, no foul, just, you know, we're different kinds of people and this hasn't worked out. And, and he said, well, uh, but I, I get to stay in the hotel uh, this week, right? And I. I said, actually, no, no. And he said, well, um, but I'm gonna be around for a couple days, right? And I said, actually, no, you need to leave now. Um, and uh, so we went back to the hotel and he went down to the bar as he tended to on all of the evenings. And um, I went to the midnight opera performance, and I really got into the, that. It was a tragic one that night. <laughs> and uh, the next morning, he was still asleep, and I, I went off to teach my class. And when I came back, he had moved out of the room. Um, and that felt like a huge relief. It was um, a little bit less of a relief when I got the bar tab when I checked out of the hotel myself. 
Um, but I carried on. Now, I mentioned that I had brought a lot of clothes with me for my uh, romantic liaison <clears throat> in Italy. And the next place that I was going was to see my friends, and I had to go through Positano. Um, perhaps some of you have been to Positano. You know there's a lot of steps in Positano. And I had, and there are no taxis in Positano. And I had these three bags, and, and they were very heavy. And the only way that I could manage to navigate the steps was to carry two bags and then leave them and then run back for my other bag and then bring that bag further along and I sort of inched up the steps that way. Um, and at some point as I was about a third of the way up these steps in Positano, an Italian, I don't speak Italian, but I understood exactly what the Italian man was saying to me. He said it in Italian, but, and I know the first word was dove, which means where, but the gist of it was, where is your husband? And of course, he hit the nail on the head, because that was the question I'd been asking myself for 22 years, and I burst into tears in Positano. And I carried on and I, I went and visited my friends who were really great, very sympathetic and cooked me a whole lot of pasta. And I didn't feel that there was any point putting on one of my fancy dresses, but I knew I had Venice ahead of me and somehow I was gonna make it great. So I went alone to Venice. I, had, I should say that I had rented and I assumed that I was gonna be splitting the tab with Doug, who was long gone. Uh, I had rented a fourth floor walk-up uh, just a block away from San Marco Square. So I had my three bags with my fancy dresses and my many pairs of high heels um, for my solo dinners in Venice. And I carried the bags, my same method, up the steps. And I decided that I just had to have a spectacular adventure in Venice. I didn't know how this was gonna happen, but I knew it was essential that it take place. And on day one, I learned what I thought it was going to be. Sting was going to be performing um, in San Marco Square with the entire Venice orchestra playing behind him. And it was going to be a full moon. And so clearly, I was finally going to have a place to wear one of my dresses. And I was really excited. And then I found out that tickets cost $400. And anyway, they were sold out. So for the next three days, I made it my mission to befriend some shopkeeper who had a shop looking out over San Marco Square. I had this all worked out that I was gonna sit on somebody's balcony and get to hear Sting. And I went into every single one of those little archways and I, I, I didn't speak uh, Italian, but I smiled a lot and I said Sting and concert and every breath you take and, and nothing seemed to work out. I, I did find one place that looked uh, hopeful as a, as a spot, but it turned out to be the police station. <laughs> Somehow, I just, I said I'm a romantic. I believed that it would work out. And that was kind of what Mindy had been telling me every morning too, back in, in my little opera festival days. Um, so, the day of the festival came and absolutely nothing had changed. And the night of the festival came, I thought maybe I can sort of peek in, but they had built these very high walls. So there was no way you could see, I could hear Sting's sound check and it sounded pretty great. And that was painful. <laughs> now at this concert, this was in Italy. So the concert was gonna start at 9.30 at night. At nine o'clock, I went back to my fourth floor walk-up. 
And I opened one of my three bags and I took out my absolute most beautiful dress and my absolute highest heels. And I put on makeup and I made my hair all fancy. And I went down to San Marcos Square, still with no particular plan, except a belief that something miraculous was going to happen. And by this time, all the people with the $400 tickets were standing in line waiting to get past the wall. And I just went and stood with them. And the line began to move, and I began to move with the line. And keep in mind, this was Italy. This was not Germany. So as the line moved forward, nobody asked for my ticket. Suddenly, I was in San Marcos Square. But I knew there would be no seat for me, and I couldn't imagine that anybody with a $400 ticket wouldn't show up. So I thought that I would just kind of lean on a lamppost in my high heels for as long as I could before I got kicked out. And a, a, a lovely Italian usher came over to me, and, and she said, not unpleasantly at all, she said, you need to take your seat now. And something inspired me to say in French, um, uh, I'm looking for my husband. And then I looked wildly for my husband. And um, there was one seat in the third row, just one, one seat in the third row. And I went and I sat there. And I thought, surely that person is going to show up, but maybe I'll get to hear a couple of songs anyway. And Sting came out, and the Philharmonic came out, and the moon came out, and we were hearing an Englishman in New York, and I stayed through the whole concert. And I went back to my, kind of like Cinderella, my fourth floor walk up, and I took off the beautiful dress and the beautiful shoes and the, the jewelry, and I, but I had had my adventure in Venice. It was time the next day to go home, and I flew home feeling that um, I, had, I had managed to redeem my heartbreaking experience uh, with Doug in the final hours of my Italian trip. The postscript to this story um, which is the romantic part, actually, um, is that three weeks after coming home, believe it or not, I still went on a Match.com date, in spite of the fact that I got a really nasty note from Doug um, telling me that there should be warnings put on Match.com for people like me. But I went on a one more, one last Match.com date um, where I met Jim. And um, uh, Jim was everything that Doug was not. And even though I had just had this rather negative experience taking a man to Europe, I had not a qualm in the world about inviting Jim to go with me to Paris three weeks later on a book tour. <laughs> and, um, and everything went great. And a year and a half later, we got married. And, and 15 months after that, uh, Jim was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. This is the not funny part of the story. And 19 months after that, Jim died. Mendy came to our wedding, incidentally. Um, and that was a year and a half ago. But I will tell you, as a veteran of a great many Match.com dates, and a, a, a great many um, uh, trips with the wrong companion, that I 
I follow her advice now, although she is no longer with us either, um, that it is a far better thing to go on an adventure alone than to be with the wrong partner. a live performance by Aaron Main of Porches. And before that, you heard stories from Kenise Mobley and Joyce Maynard. 
Um, this podcast is produced with Gabriel Galvin at his studio, Four Foot Studios in Brooklyn. Um, and he also records a lot of the music for the podcast, all these different versions we do of the Tell theme song written by a fool that end each episode. Um, playing beneath me now is Dita Peled doing a version of it. Um, in a moment, you're going to hear a live performance we did at the Tell uh, with me singing and Pasquale Grasso playing guitar. Um, if you'd like to see the Tell in person, it's a live series. Uh, it's in New York, usually. Um, but you can find out about any events that might be near you or when it's happening in New York at thetellstories.com. Um, you could also follow me on Instagram at Michael Levitin. Um, you should come see The Tell in person if you can. Uh, thank you for listening. This was episode 14 of The Tell. written by a fool it's brilliant cause it's 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 written by a fool it's brilli